3: I can't
1: do that. It's alive, It's,
3: alive, it's alive. I guess everyone's a dad of the scare
0: them. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock, the uh, podcast where we discuss and break down all of the great genre cinema that you love. I still have not stuck to a single like... That wasn't even close. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, I keep meaning to throw it in my notes and then I, I forget and then you so. try to improvise on the spot and I do and it works every time <laughs> wow I'm one of your hosts Gary Horde.
2: I'm co-host Justin Bishop. We're joined today, as always, by writer. Wait, where the fuck is Todd, Gary?
0: Todd decided 12, we were we're recording at one, and I don't know, maybe we shouldn't call him out, but no, hell. let's do it. Call him out. <laughs> uh, we, we we have a calendar now. We try to be more professional. And we told Todd <laughs> one o'clock. It's been in the calendar for like a month. And today at 12:30, he says, Hey, I'm out of town. Let's move it to three. <laughs> like, no. We have another special guest today. That's not how this works. That's that's uh, weird that you waited till less than a half an hour beforehand. Uh, hey, change the whole thing.
3: The fact that you're taking an attempt to even like have a grasp on dates and times right now. Good on you.
2: <laughs> we have to, otherwise we won't know where we are at any time. I mean, so, I don't. <laughs> so we don't have Todd here today. No lack of trying on our part, uh, but luckily. For our listeners, we do have another special guest, Mr. Zach Daigle. Return well, actually, first time on this show. He was a, a guest a couple of times on our old show, but this is his first time on Cinema Shock. Big fan of Shane Black, which big is why I asked Black. you to come on this. Big fan. Do that about you.
3: Big fan of Christmas movies, but Shane Black is just like the king of Christmas movies. So he obviously. is
2: the. He is the king of Christmas action for sure. Mm-hmm. So and, and in fact, I guess that's a good this is a good segue to plug your Christmas movie marathon that you do every year, Zach, that you're part of the organizers of uh McCarathon. It's gonna be a little bit different this year, obviously, as everything else is right now. But uh, do you wanna tell our our listeners how they can find that or what, what it is? What the hell is McCarathon?
3: Yeah, I will definitely tell you what the hell McCarathon is. So McCarathon is a 24 hour Christmas movie festival or or viewing I guess this year can't it necessarily be a festival but we'll normally call it a virtual festival virtual festival festival definitely works but it is all of the obscure not watched untraditional holiday films that you don't watch with your families but maybe watch uh, with your best friends after you go and hang out with your family but for a full 24 hour period and so the original way that we would do it was we would start the entire festival with Die Hard, and then we would end the entire festival with Long Kiss Goodnight because it's kind of like your, you know, alpha and omega yeah. of uh, non-traditional Christmas movies. But this year, uh, yeah, we are doing it socially distance safe. Uh, we're doing portions on Twitch. I believe it's just twitch.tv uh, backslash McCarathon, but um, you can always go to our Instagram at, at @macarathon_ underscore to find that information. And then uh, other parts... Uh, if you want to watch a very specific and very highly publicized Shane Black film, also known as <laughs> Iron Man 3, uh, we'll be doing a, a watch party uh, version of that to, you know, be able to watch it without. Um, yeah,
2: yeah. And uh, be able to watch it each on your own for that one and, and chat together on Discord or something along those lines. Yes. And, we and we'll throw up all the links to that stuff in and the show description on here and we'll, we'll, you know, throw it out on our social media and stuff as well. Uh, it's December 19th
3: this year, is that correct? Yes. December 19th through the 20th, uh, Saturday to Sunday, uh, from noon to noon noon to noon so
2: it's always super fun i'm really bummed that it's not going to be an in-person thing this year but i i totally understand why it's not and i think it's a wise decision on your part to, to not do it in person so thank you for that but yeah, uh, here's to uh macarathon 17 being you know where we
3: can all hang out together again please uh yeah this is the first year we haven't been all together and it's really weird for me but hey look we're, we're all staying safe and healthy that's all i care about we still get to watch christmas movies that's right
2: so we've been doing a series here on the show for... This is our our version of like a Christmas movie series on Cinema Shock where we called Black Christmas, where we take a look at the films of Shane Black, specifically those set at Christmas, which is honestly like most of them. Last week, we discussed The Last Boy Scout. The Last Wonderful. Boy Scout was a screenplay that Shane Black sold for a then record-breaking $1.75 million, uh, but a movie that was kind of trained so drastically by the studio that much of the film... Uh, including the basically the entire third act, barely resembled the script that they spent all that money on. Uh, this week, we're moving forward a few years to his next uh, full screenplay uh, to discuss a film that essentially made Shane Black quit Hollywood for nearly a decade. And that is Rennie Harlan's The Long Kiss Goodnight.
1: Thanks, Rennie. <laughs> what if you couldn't remember your real name, your first kiss, or your last goodbye? I don't-
0: Honey,
1: you have a, an ETA on that cure? Stow it. And then suddenly... I used to do this! I'm a chef! Yahoo! Without warning... All your memories... Name's Charlie. I'm coming back. Came flooding back to you. Hey, Charlie. Long time. One bullet at a time. <gasps> this man, he's gonna help me find some things out. so we'll be safe.
3: We're back when we first met. You were all like, oh, boy, I burned the darn muffins. Now, you're going to a bar, 10 minutes later, sailors come running out.
1: What up with that? This fall. Honk, if there's any trouble. yes, yeah, so Miss Daisy, I be honking. If you have plans for a calm, quiet evening. Cover your ears. It's time to kiss them all. Good night. Gina Davis, Samuel L. Jackson, the long kiss. Good night. Directed by Rennie Harlan.
0: Now, I will say, I mean, one of the fun parts about this for me, Justin, is the other, the other side of this. In case this is the first episode you're, you're hearing out there in the world of this series. I mean, throughout this series, we've been doing a good, I think, a good job of also covering Shane Black in general. Like, exactly what's going on in his mind and in his life at the time. So, we bounce from the young new kid who writes Lethal Weapon you know, is already disillusioned with Hollywood right from the beginning when his first script's not going to do anything. And then Lethal Weapon all of a sudden hits and then he's hot shit everywhere. Then he ends up getting super depressed already right after Lethal Weapon. I found a bunch of more stuff as I research him through the weeks, like where he talks about just when he comes back for Lethal Weapon 2, you know, when they change that script, he, he talks a lot in other interviews about he takes those kind of things more personally than a lot of people do. So like already at lethal weapon two, when he's going to kill Mel Gibson's character at the end of the movie, the studio doesn't like it. He's described in other interviews I've read where he's said he, he felt like a complete failure. He felt like he had let everyone he knows down everything down. And that's the reason why between we talk about going into the last boy scout, there's a two year gap between lethal weapon and the last boy scout. And
2: last Boy Scout happens, he bounces back. He just stopped writing for two years. It wasn't like a gap in production. He just like oh, shut yeah. down for two years. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so so
0: he's 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 open to this concept of like he'll just fucking disappear. So that he comes back with the last Boy Scout and <laughs> makes like the best selling script of all time. Briefly, briefly, and then uh, Joe Estherhouse, like uh, with Basic Instinct, just to show him up, comes back and and as we talked about in the last Boy Scout, he, Shane Black's like. Getting calls from Esther House saying, "Ha ha, I outsold you," and he's like, "I don't care. Like that's not yeah. what
3: I'm what doing." What the hell? And
2: Joe uh, House is an asshole.
0: Yeah, don't do
3: that to my main man Shane Black. What <laughs> the fuck? That guy, Shane Black, writes stories like Garth Ennis or like George R. R. Martin, where it's just the most depressing shit in the entire world. It sure man. is. <laughs> and, but it still just makes for one of the greatest action films you've ever seen. Don't, yeah, the guy's already got, emo- like, maybe that's why he took another two years off. Is He's just, like, dealing with so much, like, emotional turmoil from the crap that he writes. Well, there
2: were a lot of other writers who were kind of pissed at him, too. Uh, I think out of jealousy that he had gotten paid so much for the last Boy Scout. And well, and that really picks up with this a one. lot more after, after this movie. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He talks about like last Boy Scout. He thought he'd come around because he was like, all right, I'm back in business. Everything's back on track. Like I sold this one. This works I made yeah. it 1.75 million. It felt like vindication. Uh, and so he was, like, ready to go again.
2: And so after The Last Boy Scout, uh, his next gig was actually rewriting the script for uh, The Last Action Hero for uh, director John McTiernan, which was released in 1993. And that movie... Uh, was a failure at the box office. Uh, it, it was a failure by most critics' standards as well, and I think they're fucking wrong, because I, I say, love The Last Action Hero.
3: I not in my heart. Movie. Yeah, that movie is beautiful. I've always loved
2: that movie. It was like <laughs> meta before that was even a thing, you know? It's it's And it wasn't Black's concept initially, because he did rewrite someone else's script, but it was definitely like... It's very Shane Black in its dialogue and in in a lot of the ideas in it, even if it's a lot less sad than some other Shane Black movies, although it's got some sadness to it. Anyway, we'll do a Last Action Hero episode one day and I, I love that movie. Well, one
0: thing he doesn't get enough credit for I feel like is that the dude is he's predicting like where stuff is going like almost with every script like it just yeah. seems like Last Action Hero is almost Scream before Scream you know in, yeah. a, in a sense and it is, like yeah. Lethal Weapon like
2: reinvigorated Last Action, action Hero action was <laughs> Last Action Hero was also a year before Wes Craven's New Nightmare oh, uh, in yeah, which yeah, yeah. in which a character from a movie comes into the real world.
0: Yeah, so there you go. Like I mean the guy just had something beforehand uh lethal weapon was you know they, it created a whole genre of buddy cop movies you know like it just uh, action wasn't as huge as it was before lethal weapon came out and so he just he's he's got his finger on the pulse it seems like he knows what to write about
2: and d- despite the kind of failure of last action hero Uh, His name still held held a lot of weight in Hollywood. The last Boy Scout had not really set the world on fire, especially by the standards that the studio held based on what they paid on this for the script, but it was a modest success. It did fine. It kind of helped to uh, reinvigorate uh, Bruce Willis's career. And, Shane Black was still the guy who created the massively successful Lethal Weapon franchise, which by that time was already three movies in. They'd already done Lethal Weapon 3 as well, which he, of course, had no hand in, but it was still a franchise that he created. So, of course, when his next spec script goes out, it once again, just like Last Boy Scout, resulted in a bidding war. It's This is going to be a little bit of a different story than like... So when we talked about The Last Boy Scout, a lot of the drama... Involved in the making of that movie came in the post-production, where they had like seven editors come in and try to to uh, wrangle all of this footage that Tony Scott had shot. Oh man, most of the most of the drama for the Long Kiss Goodnight happens before the movie ever even sold. There's a lot that went on before this movie ever even landed in the hands of a director. So the script goes out, the agent, his agent sends it out to all the studios, and Black had given his agent a wish list of producers that he most wished to work with. That list included James L. Brooks, James Cameron, Joel Silver, Steven Spielberg, David Geffen, and the duo of Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall. Uh, Now That's a hell of a wish list, and most of those people passed on it, uh, except for two, James L. Brooks, who was based at Columbia Pictures. He had a contract with them. And Joel Silver, who had a first-look deal with Warner Brothers. So Black takes a meeting or takes meetings with these guys, with Brooks and Silver, uh, but meanwhile, a, a, an unexpected player kind of enters the game that, that wasn't even really on his radar, and that was New Line Cinema. New Line Cinema, we all know them now. New Line Cinema is a pretty big company now because they're, own, they're owned by Warner Brothers these days. But their growth kind of started in about the early 2000s, really, when they became a more of a prestige studio was when they produced Lord of the Rings. But before that, it started life as something much smaller. So Robert Shea... Uh, founded New Line Cinema in 1967 and it was more of like a distributor it didn't produce movies at the time and his goal was to kind of just supply foreign films and art films to college campuses and he found actually one of their early successes was in the distribution of the 1936 propaganda film Reefer Madness uh, which if if you're familiar with you know mystery science theater and everything Reefer Madness is a wild stupid movie but it became a big (laughs) cult hit among the college crowd I mean honestly looking back on reefer
0: madness it features a lot of things I wish people who smoked a lot of pot did it'd be um, a lot
2: more fun yeah, it'd be wild
3: <laughs> I don't know guys the way they were acting that was a lot more of like cocaine madness from yes. what I saw just a lot of yeah. like really quick snapping <laughs>
2: yeah, they, if, like real reefer madness is just people sleeping and playing there video that, games and eating Taco Bell
0: yeah right? exactly there like, is in
2: reefer madness there's that one guy who's like always in the corner just like <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I've like never tweaking. seen anyone smoke pot that like, <laughs> no <I'm>, it, <laughs> there's no tweakers when it comes to marijuana play it.
2: play some more faster faster yeah, faster faster <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) So in the mid-1970s, the uh, studio started producing its own feature films, smaller things. They produced a couple early films of John Waters, uh, but it was in 1984 when they had their biggest success with the release of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Of course, we all are familiar with that. I'm sure we will probably do a whole series on Freddy at one point. The success of that movie put them on the map. They were uh, now one of kind of the big guys, even though they were still technically an independent studio. Uh, They became known as the studio that Freddie built like this, they were known and would be known for years and years, even all the way to like Lord of the Rings. When that got announced, they were still kind of considered like the nightmare on Elm street people. Uh, They did have another similar success in 1990 with teenage mutant Ninja turtles, uh, which actually became the highest grossing independent film of all time uh, up until the Blair witch project came out. But in, Early 1994, January of 1994, things changed with the arrival of a man by the name of Ted Turner. So Ted Turner, the Turner Broadcasting System, TBS, came in and bought New Line Cinema for $500 million, half a million dollars. Yeah. For perspective, that's exactly
0: like $499,999,999 more than Justin's mom charges on the open market.
1: Wow. Jesus, Gary. (laughs) Is this a reoccurring joke? Unexpected and
2: unprovoked attack from Gary.
3: (laughs) Does he do these every week?
2: No. Not not anymore, but
0: maybe you coming back, just something sparked in me, Zach. Oh my
3: gosh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'm not the purveyor of your mama jokes.
2: (laughs) So... As Black's script for The Long Kiss Goodnight is circulating Hollywood, it lands in the hands of the folks at New Line Cinema. The New Line president, Michael DeLuca, and the executive VP, Richard Saperstein, they got a hold of it, and they slipped the script to Rennie Harlan and his then-actress wife, Gina Davis. So Harlan had a history with New Line. He'd worked with them a few years earlier on Nightmare on Elm Street 4, which was actually the most successful film of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise up until Freddy vs. Jason. Uh, and he had also directed Die Hard 2 for Joel Silver in 1990. And then uh, around the time that this was being developed, he, in 1993, he had just finished and released Cliffhanger, which is an awesome movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a lot of fun. I wish, it's too bad that Todd's not
0: here because we got confused on the Lethal Weapon episode uh, remember with uh, Richard Donner, and you mentioned uh, sixteen blocks, but at first they yeah. said twelve rounds. Randy yeah, Harlan, sixteen did blocks is Ren- Harlan. Yes,
2: yeah. <laughs> there so was he a did connection work with John Cena. <laughs> uh, he also did a lo- uh, Deep Blue Sea, not yeah. long, actually not long after this movie.
3: Another Samuel Jackson, classic. another Sam
2: Jackson. Uh, that yeah. was their reunion. So when New Line made their offer to Black and his agent, they promised him. They said this movie is going to be an automatic go. This is going to be a green. You know, we buy the script. It's greenlit. It's ready to go. We're going to make this movie with Harlan directing and Davis starring. And that was actually the first offer that Black received. And that offer was for $1.75 million, which is the same amount that he'd made for Boy Scout. But Shane Black's agents, they think that they can get more than that this time around. Uh, they think at least that they can get Joel Silver, who has a history with Shane Black. That that Shane Black owes his agents so much gratitude, it feels like. Yeah, I mean, he seems like he gives half a shit, and his agents are like the ones, like, "No, man, you're you're worth a lot of money." And Shane Black's like, "I don't, whatever, man." Like, every movie, he's just like, "All right, mm-hmm. do what you got to do." I don't yeah,
3: know. he's just as his um, his as, as scarred and as bruised as all the characters he writes. He's just, yes, <laughs> no. So then, Newline finds out that Black. When he took that
2: meeting with James L. Brooks, that they really clicked. See, Black considered James L. Brooks his favorite filmmaker. And he kind of thought that Brooks, who started life and his career as a, as a writer, that he could kind of mentor him on the script. So that was very appealing to Shane Black. So New Line gets kind of nervous about this, thinking they're going to lose him to to Columbia and James L. Brooks. So they want to put him in a room with Harlan and Davis and let Harlan and Davis kind of sell what they can do for this movie with them which turned out to be the right move because Black took that meeting and he left feeling that Rennie Harlan and Gina Davis were the right creative partners to, to take on for this script. But the thing is, it, you still had, they still had to secure the money because Harlan and Davis, they had a deal with New Line, but they weren't exclusive to New Line, which means that any other interested party were free to bid on their behalf and Harlan could potentially direct the movie for another studio. So New Line ups its offer to $2.5 million. Uh, Warner and Columbia both kind of match the bid and then New Line ups it to $2.7 million. So this is all happening really fast. This, This happens on, like, the script goes out on, like, a Monday morning. This is all happening Monday through Wednesday, like, very quickly over the course of a few days, just these bidding wars between the studios. And by Thursday, Black's agents are telling him, they're like, we need to enter formal negotiations and secure a deal by the end of the day today. By about noon that day, Shane Black's like, Done. He pieces out. He's like, I'm, this is, I, this is bullshit. I don't feel like dealing with this. So he just left and told his new line, told his agents to start negotiating with New Line.
0: You're already entering uncharted territory with the price of the script now, like when it gets up to 2.7, like this is like, all right, this is insane amounts of money. So it's weird to me that Shane just dips. I mean, it's not weird to me knowing Shane Black now, Mm -hmm. for what we know, but I guess at this point, he's like, I guess anything from here is fine. Y'all figure it out.
3: He's a scarred (laughs) man, Gary. He'll take anything he can get. (laughs) So his agents enter
2: into a four and a half hour marathon negotiating session, which sounds horrible. Like a horrible experience, but that's their job. So you know, whatever. Uh, and Black Shane Black's calling every twenty or thirty minutes from his home for updates. In between updates, he said he's like, "This is what I do near negotiations. I'd I'd be eating or reading detective novels, and then I'd call and get an update, and then go back to reading my detective novels."
3: Of course, he would. Oh my God, Shane!
2: <laughs> and these negotiations—they really kick into gear when Black's agent. They say that they they are like, "We're going to sell. We will sell the script to New Line for a guaranteed." $3.5 million, which was, I think, $3 million up front, then $500 million once
3: like it goes into production. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought it was it was pretty close to $4 million. Is what yeah, they, well, they
2: it it, it ends up going higher. But New Line does agree to that initially. And th- there's one issue, though, is that Harlan and Davis can't commit to doing The Long Kiss Goodnight as their next movie because they're already signed on and in pre-production on Co- uh, Cutthroat Island
3: for Coralco Pictures. So we want to talk about those box office numbers.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Columbia, they apparently never went as high as New Line. They bid, the representative from Columbia in the interview I read said they wouldn't give a number, but they said somewhere over three, but less than 3.5 million. Uh, Then Warners apparently never raised their bid bid past that 2.7. Joel Silver's calling to get updates. He's on the set of Richie Rich in Asheville. Uh, and he's calling to get updates throughout the day, and finally, after the 2.7, Warners is not interested anymore. So Black has this to decide. He's like, does he go with Columbia because he wants to work with James L. Brooks, where he'll make half a million dollars less, or does he go to New Line, who's offering more money, a higher percentage of the the box office profits, and they're saying they're automatically going to greenlight this movie. So during this negotiation, at some point towards the end of it, This sounds like a scene from a movie, but Black's agent, he writes the number four on a piece of paper and like slides it across the desk and says, this is what it would take to make the deal work. Because they're saying that like Black is unhappy, whether this is true or not, this is what the agents say, is that Black is unhappy that his movie is not going to be harlan and davis's next movie so they're actually using that as a negotiation tactic to get the price up even higher so in order to get the bid up to a full four million dollars they actually had to get approval from bob shea the guy who founded new line he's still the the chairman of new line but bob shea's in sweden at this time and he's at a chateau that he owns out in sweden that doesn't have a phone and it's 4 a.m in sweden Mm. so so new line they have to call someone in sweden that where there is a phone, have them drive to Bob Shea's chateau and then wake him up in the middle of the night to get him to, to then drive him to where there's a phone to get him on the line so that they could continue and finalize these negotiations. Uh, but Shea agreed to it. I mean, th- their thinking was his thinking was that like, yeah, he's paying four million billion for this, but he's he sees it as not paying for a script, but paying for a movie. Black, of course, agrees instantly because why wouldn't he?
0: Let this be a lesson off all future screenwriters. Uh, call at 4 a.m. and yeah. they'll so probably just, just be like, "Whatever, whatever." Yeah, just
2: let me go back to sleep. Because another
0: lesson away. would be uh, if the chairman of a movie, movie studio's uh, holiday in Sweden, four million is probably he likes change. Money. Yes. Oh,
3: yeah, <laughs> oh, oh
0: yeah, whatever. Let's just do it. Can we talk for a minute about the script though? Like what, what this is that they're buying? I mean, I, I yeah, you, you brought up that point that I I had not heard, but like that he's looking at it as buying a movie instead of buying a script. Cause the script does go through like six or seven revisions. Yes. Um, oh yeah. Like the idea that, that Shane Black starts off with here is uh, to hear him talk about it, He's like, uh, he just wanted to write a quirky pulp movie. Uh, he loved espionage stuff bag as a kid to read James Bond, uh, and his mom used to argue, we talked a little bit about this and Lethal Weapon in his background, but just that those books were too old for him. He needed to wait till he was a grown up. His whole life, like he would be sneaking these books. He's just fascinated by espionage, pulp movies, detective novels, that sort of thing. He also liked the idea of a housewife instead of a grown ass man being in this situation. He, he talked a yeah. little bit about that. that
2: well, he, he it did. When he first started writing it, it was a man. And yeah, it changed, that may
0: have been. He says it, that, it,
2: he changed it about about halfway through writing the the first version of the script. He decided it should be a woman that it would work better as a woman.
3: Yeah, yeah. I actually I actually have a quote here from Birth, Death movies, uh, like from Shane Black. He said, "What I wanted to do is not be afraid to give a woman character a serious role as I would a man character. The temptation to keep a woman soft and fluffy. Uh, I also wanted to do a story about a mother and a daughter." about a woman using her skills as a professional killer and a mother to protect her child. Yeah. So, I mean, that completely flips the script on any kind of, like, action movie motif. Especially uh, at the time. The yeah, I mean, there, the there's
2: been some things since then that have embraced that, but one quote at I, the time...
0: What quote I found from it was that the minute I hit on the idea of a housewife instead of a man who's got this amnesia in the suburbs, somehow it just felt like it clicked it was a powerful image all of a sudden these two worlds that collide the world we live in every day and the one we blind ourselves to the conflict and the contrast between extreme violence terror worldwide implications and this small intimate oblivious life of a community in the suburbs i just thought this would be a lot of fun to have like basically he just wanted this crashing into like just small town nowhere
2: yeah whereas <laughs> like, his previous movies were set like in la you know, this is a very different environment. He also yeah. talks a lot about, though, that this is about accepting and confronting
0: parts of yourselves that you're ashamed of. Yeah. And that there's something you don't want to admit to that, that it's this character about you. He said in the interview uh, that I was reading, I think the person that asked, so he said, well, it seems like a lot of the themes harken back to Lethal Weapon. He says, well, yeah. Well, it's about self-loathing and self-hatred, so it's, like, stuff I'm familiar with. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so right. fucking emo. <laughs> I mean,
3: Kane, Kane it is more self-reflection, but if you have to say, like, self-hatred, go for it. Because, uh-huh. I, I mean, he really, I mean, uh, Mitch Hennessy, which the name, just Mitch Hennessy for a Samuel Jackson character is. <laughs> is I love it. Uh, <laughs> so he, good. I mean, Charlie but,
2: Baltimore is, like, the ultimate, I don't know spy name It's such yeah, a cool you're right. name. Oh yeah. And you know Absolutely. it probably started as Charlie like a man's name. And when he changed the gender, he's just like, Yeah, her name was like Charlene and Yeah. And oh yeah, no. It. Um
3: uh what's his name? Brian Cox called like as soon as she gets in the car like with him for like the first time like, he's just, like, Charlene Baltimore. Yeah. <laughs> like he just, like, really, like, spells it out for he slows molasses, just so you, like, understand. That is a female badass. Yeah.
0: <laughs> now, there's a lot of parts of this script, though. I mean, he does, like, he's apt to do in the other ones we've talked about. I mean, it's darker and more graphic in the original script than it does oh, end yeah. up in the final film. I know there was, like, more violence. There's, like, a scene where both of them get tortured. Uh, they both had... uh talking about mitch and charlie they both had like bigger backstories like mitch tells a story about getting gang raped in prison and mm-hmm. uh it, it, more talk about his wife and son and she has more of a dark backstory um and in the first draft i think uh mitch dies in the, the first cut of the film which yeah, one, yeah, the first that's right test audiences yeah. didn't like it yeah uh so- good part for shane though this time around is he's also a producer i think on this one and so yeah he, he talks a lot in stuff i saw that you know People get nervous with the violence, but now he's in a place to step in uh, if something's getting toned down to a place he doesn't like or whatever and say like, hey, look, I know this is a lot for you, but this is important for the story. Right. And so but but he also discusses how it's a draining process because this is his baby. So he's there every single step of the way in this one. He's the only writer doing revisions. He's on location the whole time. Um, so He's so, on set the whole time. Yeah, yeah. He's there oh, yeah. with them so he can he's like one of three producers so he can step in and and say something on on every aspect of yeah. it. Yeah, um, a little
2: more hands-on than he's been able to be in the past. Oh yeah, especially
0: in cold-ass Ontario too. Well, yeah, way. just to, to wrap that part of it up, I mean, he talks about the problem they had was Warner Brothers bought a script that was written for a $100 million film and they had $65 million to right. use. So a lot of the work they were doing was to economize the film it said it wasn't ever about spectacle necessarily, but they had to make it more intimate and personal, even with the violence and that sort of thing. He says, uh, so, so the fact that the violence is a lot more intimate and personal now is greater or better than when we have so much expensive stuff going on. He said, it, not that that's not great, but we've all seen Twister five times. <laughs> uh, <he> says, <laughs> I'm, I'm pleased with this film. In a sense, there's still spectacle, but it feels more like a thriller. So we were basically economizing a kitchen sink draft down to something more, filmable Uh, Uh, he he talks about just that uh this uh, time he also like revamped some of the stuff like it was really dealing with like an mk ultra kind of deal but he felt like it was like really muddy in the script he talks about the rennie harlan thing actually gave them a chance to like you know nobody knew what was going on because rennie harlan just uh popped up and just said oh yeah we got cut third island sorry we can't do this right now so he's like we all had no idea we would like fax to malta where they were like trying to make notes with
2: each other he said the mcguffin we'll do a this- series on box office bombs at some point cover cutthroat island
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> right
3: don't please don't man
2: <laughs>
0: but he <laughs> gets
3: some credit that. i'll have you back on zach <laughs>
0: Nah,
3: all right i'll watch it <laughs> i've
0: never seen it honestly so <laughs> I, have, I have no I idea either. i've only um, seen
3: seen clips it's not good
0: but yeah, he describes the MK Ultra thing as the MacGuffin in the spec script that he had. It was from some bullshit article he'd read about experiments in the fifties and sixties. Uh, so I would love like, a Shane Black script about MK Ultra, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> he decided to use this time. He said to get off his ass and go to the library and find out what's actually happening in the world. And uh, he said his research assistant Anthony Bagarazzi, is the person who found some clippings and gave them to him about the World Trade Center bobbing, bombing. And how one of the bombers had accused the CIA of knowing about the bombing and letting it go. And he said, in fact, the person who like had stamped the visa of the terrorists who built the bomb was a CIA caseworker, like working in the embassy or whatever. And so like it was like supposedly the CIA was in on it the whole way through and they just let it happen. But uh, he said that him and uh, Anthony looked at each other and they were like, man, that's some shit that's going to work. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah so that's where they got to.
2: And that makes for a good makes for a good movie for sure. So the negotiation process of this movie is kind of where most of the drama lies in this story because the filming itself was pretty straightforward with just a few setbacks or newsworthy moments. Uh, aside from the one hundred and twenty seven year old house and historical, monument (laughs) where they were filming catching fire and being destroyed you know what's
3: Uh, great about that you know what's (laughs) so great is that this movie is so filled with explosions so filled with explosions and fire and the thing that sets this fucking house on fire is either lighting from them or an electrical fire
2: yeah it wasn't like anything it wasn't like a stunt gone wrong (laughs) Yeah, it
0: was like the Windermere house or something, and it was like like, their historical location. Yeah, and they, but they couldn't prove it. They couldn't prove that it was the lights or anything. So I think they got away
2: yeah uh, yeah. i even i mean and and i i don't know anything about this house other than some articles that i read it was such a big deal that in 2016 there were articles like in the local papers that were about like the 20th anniversary of this house burning down like that's how big of a deal it was oh, and yeah. they were still talking about it two decades later
0: but, it was so- it's important for Americans to make a stamp but like all all accounts i could find harlan helping choose this location this was the first mainstream american-based film that used to uh, uh, toronto you know like yeah really- which is
2: crazy because now you see toronto and and especially vancouver as being major filmmaking areas right uh, right so it, it
0: it's like it, so it's notable for that and yeah. like like i was saying they, so we're americans we got to go in and we're like we got to burn something good down
1: yeah yeah what's surfing
0: <laughs>
3: how about the, how about the border bridge between between <laughs> New York and Canada Why well that, that
2: shooting location in Ontario t- it proved to be the biggest challenge to the filmmakers simply because of the temperatures because they were shooting in the Canadian winter oh uh, yeah it was perfect because it was covered in snow and it, you know it had the look that they needed because most of the movie is set in you know the New England area at Christmas time so having snow everywhere all the time was essential but it had its own difficulties. And like like in one scene, there's a scene where uh, Gina Davis and Sam Jackson they fall they jump out of like a third floor window into a frozen lake. And to do that, they they jump off a crane into a giant airbag. But they still needed like a close up for when they surface out of the frozen water. So they're not filming this on like a sound stage. They sawed a hole in the ice on an actual frozen pond. Yep. Had Gina Davis and Sam Jackson just keep jumping into it and coming back up to surface? Uh, Gina Davis described it as feeling like an ice cream headache, but ten thousand times worse. <laughs> Yeah, I,
3: I, I, I read that same article. <laughs> they had a hot wow. tub about twenty yards away. That they yeah were yeah <laughs> they did they did that scene that shot like three times. Like that Ugh. scene where they're like popping up out of the hole. That sounds horrible. Also, if they haven't done if someone hasn't done like a science YouTube video about like. The probability of them actually surviving that jump from that like <laughs> s- from that high up into that water, I, I I would love to see it. I don't know if anyone's done it yet, but if uh, somebody wants to hop on the velocity in which they hit that water, if they actually live <laughs> to or break not, that ice, yeah, no, I need that to happen. Please, just throwing that on the internet.
0: <laughs> Props to Gina Davis for wanting to do her old stunts and everything. Like, that's yeah, a, man, pretty insane. But you got to trust your husband a lot to let him put you through that. Although I will say, and this is probably a story for another day on a Riddhi Harlan series, he, he definitely has a kid with the assistant he had during the making of this movie. Oh, wow. and, uh, and probably why him and before. Gina
1: Davis—probably
2: <laughs> why him and Gina Davis got divorced two years after this movie came out. Are you yeah, serious? Say, maybe
0: he was what? trying to kill Gina Davis.
2: Is what I'm saying.
0: <laughs> maybe
3: because I looked that up and I saw that he had a kid, and I was like. That looks like, like it could have been Gina's kid, but definitely not.
1: Wow. <laughs> wow.
2: Wow! So another scene in the film that took place on what Harlan describes as the coldest night of the shoot uh, It's when they're working on the bridge for that end sequence. It was a night shoot and the wind was blowing like 70 miles an hour. So it made mm-hmm. the temperature like with the windshield feel like it was minus 98 degrees. That's
3: Ugh. crazy. And
2: uh, so Davis said, it, that in that scene, she gets her character gets knocked unconscious, and she had it was like she's like, This is the hardest thing I shot the whole film, which should be the easiest because literally all I have to do is sit there, let's lie there unconscious. But she was involuntarily shivering because it was so cold. Uh she just couldn't sit still. So eventually Harlan like had to find a way to get the ground underneath her heated up so she could lie still.
3: Enter the heater boys. Enter the heater boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, she, they had these guys called Heater Boys on the set. That, uh, they, that That's actually what they're credited as in yes. the film, is the Heater Boys. And their job was just to follow... Davis around on set with propane heaters to warm her up in between <laughs> in between shots. So the Long Kiss Night was released on October eleventh, nineteen ninety six. It did modest business at the box office. It opened at like number three and ended up ended up making about eighty nine million dollars at the global box office, which on a budget of sixty five million dollars and you know paying four million dollars for the script wasn't exactly the result that the producers had hoped for. It wasn't exactly a, a smashing success. The film's poor performance has been attributed to a poor advertising campaign but I honestly think it was at least partially due to the blowback from Cutthroat Island
3: yeah I was going to say I, and I think I have a quote in my phone somewhere about Shane Black saying that literally like the the commercialism from or like just like getting the movie out there was kind of ruined by like the previous two it was like well was-
2: I mean Cutthroat Island was released less than a year 10 months before this one so the stink of that was still in the air and, and the fact that you had Davis and Harlan reuniting probably didn't mm-hmm. Excite audiences very much because this is a, again this is a story for another day. But Cutthroat Island was in the Guinness Book of World Records as the biggest box office flop of all time. And mm-hmm. That's really the only reason I know it, and I knew that
0: then. So I remember that being it was a the big thing deal. About it was that in the movie. news.
2: Yeah, it was a big deal at the time.
0: Yeah, I did find like Shane Black saying, uh, quote, uh, I don't think The Long Kiss Goodnight is a bad movie. I don't think we were shunned because of the script sale or anything like that. I think it just didn't get people's asses in the seats on opening day. They just didn't come out to see it. Who knows why? I was honestly a bit disappointed because I sold the script because Rennie Harlan and Gina Davis were available. And the very next day, Rennie said, I forgot to tell you something. And there's this (laughs) contractual thing. And I might have to go do another movie first. And that was Cutthroat Island. So he came off Cutthroat Island, which was one of the biggest bombs of the decade. And I think that may have hurt us too. I wish we had released this movie before Cutthroat.
2: Yeah, that would, it probably would have done better. I mean, I I remember I saw this movie in the theater when it came out. I remember seeing it in the theater because I did. I did. Yeah. I not only that, I read the novelization. Of what? This
1: movie. <laughs> oh, wow. You <laughs> own a copy of that? <laughs> I don't
2: have it anymore, man. I wish I did. Oh. I um I was obsessed with movie novelizations in the early and mid '90s i read i read a lot of novelizations at the time for movies that my parents probably wouldn't have let me see now when this came out i was 15 so i'm not sure how i got into it but i remember i might have seen it with my dad or something honestly but i i would read a lot of movie novelizations when i was a kid of movies that i was not actually going to be allowed to go see but my parents would let me read the books i don't understand that reasoning but i uh, as a result, I was a very big fan of movie novelizations when I was a kid. And movie novelizations in the in the mid and early '90s were kind of a big deal. Like I remember going to like the bookstore that I used to go to at the mall. I think it was like a Walden Books or a B. Dalton or something like that. But they would actually have like a section of the bookstore dedicated to film novelizations. Like they were a big wow. a big deal at the time. They were big sellers. And they were always fun, and I, I'm still kind of fascinated by them. I've got a couple now, because I'll, I'll find them in used bookstores every now and then. Uh, like, I've got a Die Hard with a Vengeance one uh, <laughs> that, I, that I bought. It was the most recent one I bought. Uh, but they're often based on, like, early cuts of the script. So they will, it's kind of a look into, like, what the movie could have been a lot of times, because they'll start writing the novelizations way before the movie goes into production. So it's, it's it
3: can be kind of interesting. Do you remember if that if if the Long Kiss Goodnight book was like any like any way different or like? I don't
2: remember. I'd be curious to go back and read it though. If you could, if we could like find a copy,
3: because I'd love to know if they they threw in that stuff about about what you were saying, Gary, with with Mitch like being like sexually assaulted in jail and like there was another bit about him like still talking to his dead mom and Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. That was probably.
2: Uh, I would imagine that was probably in there because that was all based on early. I mean, it depends on at which point in the scripting process the novelization would have been written. Yeah, I've read the Halloween
0: uh, novelization a couple which is of times now. Wild, yeah. And I was to <laughs> saying, Michael Myers pretty much has a
2: boner the whole time.
0: So. Let's go.
3: <laughs>
2: There's all this druid shit in it. It's crazy.
3: What in the world, man? Yeah,
2: you, that one. If you want a physical copy of, you're gonna have to shell out some money.
3: Yeah, yeah, I just have it on the old
2: Kindle. Yeah, I
3: can. I can only imagine. What in the world? I had no clue. So uh, black.
2: They- um, also speculated though that the film might have made more money if it had been about a man uh, because you know like we said his initial screenplay when he started writing it was a man but then he he realized that it would only work with having a woman at the, at the center of its story which kind of goes into that quote that uh, the that Zach read earlier about where he says you know the temptations to keep a woman soft and fluffy but he wanted to kind of subvert that whole idea which at the time was not a thing but the studio, I think even told him like, you should probably make this about a man. And he refused to do it because he knew it would only work with that maternal instinct, like a mother protecting its child. He said there
0: was definitely talk with like new line where they were wanting to, and there was names like Steven Seagal and Sylvester Stallone being brought up for the movie. But it's interesting. Like he, he was, he was, Dead set on the woman thing, like he, he he liked that aspect of it. And I think it was because like to hear him talk about some things like he's been labeled a misogynist a, a bunch of times, like in his movies or like when people. Really, I think we briefly touched on it, like in the way he's got the balls out action stuff or he's like the violent guy and, and that well yeah sort of even thing.
2: in last boy scout i think roger ebert described it as having as being vilely misogynistic in one interview i saw i mean they
0: asked him about like writing for a woman and did it feel different or whatever and, and this is a, a little bit longer one sorry but i thought this was interesting and go for he,
1: it
0: <clears throat> he said no there's not as much difference as people think it's not like you write for a woman and all of a sudden she talks about her period all of the time I treated her just like any other character. I wanted to feel sorry for her. I wanted to feel empathy for her. And I wanted her to be funny and interesting. I created a character I would want to go out with that I would find attractive, wild, and fascinating. I want to continue here. But I also like this quote because it talks a little bit about some of the other stuff we talked on. I think a lot of women these days talk like men. I don't know if anybody's listening, but every time a studio says to me, you can't have a woman say this. Uh, excuse me, have you been to a bar? I don't know where you grew up, but I haven't met women like that in quite a while. I wasn't looking for vindication in the eyes of people who might, for whatever reason, find me misogynist. In fact, if anything, I think this character is very strong, but she's just as sexy and racy and 70s. The 70s were a very misogynistic time, and it's my favorite filmmaking period. I don't think any I don't think my films are particularly misogynist. I think the women are very strong. I think men are very foul-mouthed. The other thing that bothers me is that the tendency people have to equate the voice of a character with the views of the author. For instance, if a character in a screenplay turns and says, Hey, what are you, a fucking fag? I know a lot of people who talk like that. That doesn't mean I go around calling people fags. I, I, that, we
2: touched on that a little bit in the think that's, Weapon. Yeah, How, I mean... Like, I, I th- think that's a good point though because a lot of people do equate the characters with the writer especially when a writer has such a distinct voice like shane oh, yeah. black does they they think that they're they're being more literal but that's not the case i mean he wrote he drops a, the f-bomb in uh lethal weapon i think uh mel gibson says it right yeah yeah that's what it made me think of is and that doesn't mean that shane black is saying but mel gibson's character in that is kind of shitty you know, yeah. in, in the first in oh, yeah. the first one, I mean, where Mel Gibson was just ad libbing, I don't know.
0: Yeah. One thing he talks about in this one is he was really going for like a satirical kind of vibe too with a he called it revisionist bond and yeah. uh like just uh with a lot of outrageous thrown in, I think is how he described it. He uh he referenced Warren Murphy as an author Well, Warren his- Murphy uh, was
2: his co-writer on Lethal Weapon 2. Oh, okay, that's right. So that, yeah.
0: And uh, he says he has a series of books called The Destroyer, and uh, he says he he just hasn't seen anything like that since. And so,
2: he was well, going you for also kind of have to stuff. wonder if he um, if he was somewhat influenced by, and I don't know because I don't know if this was ever in his wheelhouse of things that he was into. But like the the like revenge movies of like the seventies and stuff, you know, like women revenge, like rape revenge movies and things like that, because oh, this kind of has yeah. those vibes to it. Because honestly, I get a lot of Kill Bill vibes. Oh, this big movie. time.
1: Oh, because yeah. you've got
2: the woman who was shot in the head. She's an assassin, gets shot in the head, loses her memory. And obviously this is uh, quite a few years before Kill Bill. And I don't know that Tarantino was necessarily influenced by that, by this, but I wonder if they were all both somewhat influenced by some of the same films of the 70s. I, I thought of Captain Marvel too, oddly enough, when I was watching this, just yeah. like her r- r-
0: having to remember everything or whatever. I'm yeah,
2: I mean, the, the Kill Bill thing though is like, it's the memory thing, the amnesia thing. The she's a deadly assassin. She's got a daughter. Like there, there's a lot of parallels. Yeah, I mean, the story. Mm-hmm. Her background's a little different because obviously Charlie is a an assassin for the government, and Beatrix is not. But there are some parallels, and I, I I think is I mean probably surely oh yeah,
3: coincidental,
2: has, but interesting.
3: She has like boss battles that she has to get through before she finally beats like her bill, like her original like the man who got her pregnant. Like right. Yeah. Finally, get her revenge on that guy.
2: Incoming transmission.
1: Hey folks, it's your old friend, Mr. Todd A. Davis from the Cinema Shock Podcast, here to ask, are you tired of seeing a random episode of Star Trek and thinking, hmm, I wonder where this falls into the overall prime timeline? I know I am. That's why I'm bringing you a new podcast covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order. It's called Computer Resume Podcast. Each week, join me and a rotating panel of my family and friends as we boldly talk Trek like no one has before. If there's a joke to be made, we'll make it. And if there's a poignant discussion to be had, well, we'll try our best. We'll also have interviews, contests, take listener questions, and other things currently deemed classified by Section 31. Those shifty (coughs) motherfuckers. So join us every week starting in January of 2021 for the Computer Resume Podcast, free wherever you get your podcasts. And be the first to hit us up online now at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or email us directly at ComputerResumePodcast at gmail.com. The Computer Resume Podcast, part of the Slice of Fry Gold Network. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you soon.
2: So Gary, the the one thing I want to ask you, reviews for this were decent. They were okay. I think it's at 70% or so on Rotten Tomatoes. So there were people that actually liked it more than what its box office would indicate but i'm curious if you uh if you've come across any other reviews that uh, from from viewers that would say otherwise oh yeah well i mean i've got some deeper
0: ones that get into shade black as a person but there certainly (laughs) were reviews out there Justin, where it seemed like somebody needs a nap
3: (laughs) yeah i've put my fist up i'm ready to fight (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh man uh so let's see here this first one comes from actually you know what i mostly just went with this one because this one bothered me uh joe cortade <laughs> he he reviewed this uh on july 4th 2004 <laughs> politically correct hollywood garbage I don't hold spy thrillers to high standards of plausibility, but there are limits beyond which politically correct Hollywood impulses make these productions painful to watch. Apparently Arabs are simply unacceptable villains as terrorists. Who could imagine Arabs indulging in terror? The CIA or its nameless intelligence agency stand-in is at the top of the Hollywood list, however, followed by neo-Nazis and businessmen except it's the CIA from an alternate universe, all knowing, all competent. This movie manages to up the PC a notch beyond the others. However, not only is the CIA going to kill thousands in Niagara Falls in a poisonous gas attack to help it lobby for a budget increase, it's going to leave the body of an innocent Arab at the scene for a scapegoat. You would think they would be too embarrassed to keep this in circulation after 9-11, but being PC means never having to say you're sorry.
3: This what? man looked way too far into this film. Oh, he, was,
0: he sure did. He was feeling it man. He uh, oh, good God, man. He,
3: it, it seems I, like it seems like he made a couple assumptions incorrectly about this film. You know what you yeah, do? Yeah, you know, you, you so. know what you do whenever you make an assumption, right?
1: You make an ass out of you
0: and assumption. Right? Thank you
3: so much, Gary.
0: <laughs> no, that's uh, that's definitely one of my favorite lines for this movie. It, this this one has a lot of classy ones. I feel like I need to find another one somewhere in here oh, because it's bothering mean, me.
3: <laughs> like to, like, uh, I feel like I went too dark. I, I like to be Frank and Ernest in, <laughs> that's in just, Chicago and Frank and New York I'm earnest. That is such a good dad joke, though. It's <laughs> just a dad
0: joke. <laughs> you have any others, Gary? <laughs> uh, here's a couple of more just to, to make it less dark. I definitely have to speak to my sister about her recommending this film to me. The Long Kiss Goodnight definitely makes my top ten list. For worst movies ever made. Wow. This was a terrible (laughs) movie with overdone stunts and explosions. I'm sure Samuel Jackson, who I think is a great actor, must have had second thoughts about this flick after it was completed. Oh, well, all actors have a dud once in a while. As for Gina Davis, let's hope that her ventures into TV are more successful than her last movie roles. I'm afraid that The Last Kiss gets a big kiss off from this reviewer.
3: Jesus, man. (laughs) Dude, and, and, and Samuel Jackson recently has said that he loves Mitch Hennessy, like would go back to that role in a heartbeat. Yeah. Like he loves that shit, man. Like, uh, uh, I I understand people read too far into it. And I just think that it's just a a good roller coaster of a film that makes you feel something about your family and yourself. (laughs) You don't have to look too far into that CIA and like action bullshit.
0: (laughs) If you, if you go to one star reviews, we'll just leave it at this. If you go to the one star reviews and uh, search them for the long kiss good night, kiss off is used more than once (laughs) that is apparently a
3: favorite disc from uh
0: negative reviews of long kiss goodnight
3: wow no suck my kiss none of that
0: no No, no, unfortunately not uh i will say though for for shane uh you know we, we can get into the other stuff from like his public and stuff like that but i did find this one legitimate review here that i guess could go into some uh you know somebody needs a nap but it, it, this was like from creativescreenwriting.com. I found this and uh, it says uh, the last action hero, which followed the last boy scout. Sorry. I just picked this up in the middle. I apologize. So the last action hero, which followed the last boy scout, are we seeing a trend even in the titles, repetition, overkill? Anyway, last action hero was nothing more than a result of a desperate writer who has fallen and can't get up. I didn't want to believe it, but after watching the long kiss good night, I'm afraid that the dance is over. Shane Black needs to get back to the basics and what it was that made him a record breaker, a writer who lived on the edge and as a result wrote a cutting edge screenplay with Lethal Weapon. He has lost that edge. You have to check out the first page of Black's screenplay. It's classic. It's a classic example of sucking your reader in by the bottom of page one and then compelling them to turn the page. So for a few pages, a couple of scenes, whatever, Black shows us his stuff, but ultimately, Black has no edge in this movie. His script is reduced to cliche, non-resistant storytelling. The characters become freaks of imagination and lacking in any kind of substance and certainly laughable in their development.
2: Well, first of all, that guy sounds like a real fun guy i would be hanging out with at parties. <laughs> uh, but also, I think he is dead wrong in that. Yeah. Now, now I, do, I understand that with this movie, because of Rennie Harlan's action director sensibilities, it can be easy for some of the character stuff to be overshadowed by the spectacle but i do think that like just like other screenplays we've talked about like the characters that are at the center of the story and we've talked about how shane black likes to write about damaged characters you've got your martin riggs in lethal weapon joe hallenbeck and jimmy Dix in in the last boy scout but we also talked
0: Justin, about like action should be driven by the characters i mean we have brought that up before i'd say this one may be the more like Plot-driven story that we've seen in this series,
3: maybe, but may, I maybe it, it parallels. It definitely parallels between like the plot and more so the character development throughout. And I think that it really kind of ends on the character development note more but than anything. It's all about the
2: journey and the arc of 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 Samantha and or, or Charlie and Mitch about them kind of changing and and finding who they are. I mean, I I would even argue that they are more fucked up and and broken than Martin Riggs or or Jimmy Dix. I mean, they these guys, Samantha Kane and Mitch Hennessy are fucked up, <laughs> like they are. Uh, oh, yeah. and, and you mentioned earlier that you how how earlier drafts of this were even sadder than than the final film, because you you had that moment or that that kind of backstory where Mitch Hennessy was like sexually assaulted in prison, where he spoke to his dead mother. Uh, and Charlie's backstory: she was molested by her father, and she witnessed his murder. And like her dad died, thinking that she was responsible for his death. Like there's some god, god that's messed awful. up stuff. Yeah. And, and but even the characters who made it on the screen in the final version of this film are 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 messed up. You know, they've had a had a rough go of it. I mean, Mitch was a cop who committed crime and and went to prison. And now he's a private eye and he's a con man. Like he's not even a like
3: he's barely a legit private eye. You know, Legitimate con- like he's legitimately a a professional con man. I mean yeah. the, the first scene you see him in, he's busting a dirty cop with two homeless men disguised as other like private investigators. He,
2: exactly, yeah. And like his marriage is over. His son thinks that you know the toys that he's giving him are Ugh. stolen. Uh but over the course of the film, the the two of these people who you know they kind of mitch wants to give up at certain points but he finally kind of embraces this and the movie's really about the two of them working to kind of better each other and to better themselves over the course of the movie and that it's easy for that to get lost in all of the explosions and the gunfights and stuff but but, and i and it's because i think once again like in all of shane black's scripts that we've talked about the plot itself is unnecessarily complicated (laughs)
3: Oh absolutely uh, you
2: know, but it, it's silly like if you think about the CIA stuff like you said Zach like the CIA it's all really silly so it's
3: it. it's like she was originally on the Daedalus project and then she was like backstabbed by another like operative on the back uh, on the Daedalus project but then it's like they end up hooking up or something like that <laughs> yeah it's
2: I don't know I would have a very hard time explaining the uh the Main, I guess, what you'd call the main plot mm-hmm. of the movie, because it's, but the thing is, that's it's just there as a backdrop to these incredibly well-written characters. I think because the real tension of this is not between Charlie and her former targets and former allies; it's between Charlie and Samantha. You know, it's it's these two halves of this personality kind of butting up against each other. Uh, because even when she becomes, even like halfway through the movie, when she embraces or she fully kind of becomes Charlie, dyes her hair and everything. Uh, the goodness of Samantha can't really be avoided. Like she's still, a, that's still, yeah, it was a cover that she made up, but even Mitch Hennessy, I think says it at some point in the yeah. movie, like that he was called. all, you You might've made that up, but that, that came from somewhere. Like that's yeah. part of you.
3: I think the the line is like, he calls her out and is just like, where did that like sense of personality come from or something right. like that?
0: Which uh, that, that's one of the cool parts about this movie too, the way he subverts certain things, by the way, is like Mitch is not the best dude, but he's like the moral center of this movie.
2: Yeah, he very <laughs> and, uh, much
0: is. He, it's like, it's, uh, and I, I think I did see Shane talk about that, so that that's not completely my idea. I feel like I saw somewhere him talking about how it was important to him, just the idea of a guy that was Mitch, like like Mitch, also in the moment of like the, well, this is like a sexier script than like Shane Black's. Uh, at least we covered in this series that you know there's that scene with her, uh, Gina Davis and Samuel Jackson, and uh, you know it's like Samuel Jackson's not the best dude in the world, but he still passes up the chance to get down with Gina Davis right here because he's like, I think you're you know trying to block out this other side of yeah, you, but yeah. uh, he's like, teacher.
2: he's essentially her like conscience.
0: You know,
3: when she's right. sort of abandoned her coach. Oh, it's so great to see them, like, kind of slingshot their roles throughout the entire thing. Like, they are, like, so it's, like, you know, you come in on Mitch, and he's kind of the asshole. You come in on Sam, and she's, like, the, like, lighthearted sweet lady. And then it's, like, they role reversal whenever Charlie comes into it. And she's just, like, this total badass, like, does a bunch of, like, terrible, like, shit, says a bunch of terrible shit. And then Mitch is, like, calling her like is the, is the one calling her out on doing all that terrible shit when she, he he literally says it's two days till Christmas. Like call your daughter. What are you doing? Like you're, there's still something in there that that makes you think of that.
2: Well, there's a, there's a scene in the original script where Charlie and Mitch are, um, they're driving past a diner.
3: Yeah.
1: I,
2: I read about
3: this.
2: So this diner's surrounded by police. There's like a hostage situation And the bad guy has a shotgun pointed at a girl, like a a teenage girl. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Charlie gives Mitch the order to drive to the nearest hill. She takes out her suitcase with her old sniper rifle, puts it together, shoots the bad guy. Right. This is sort of indicative of who she is, like her inherent goodness as a person, because that moment that what she's doing there had nothing to do with like finding out her identity or her backstory has nothing to do with anything within the main plot it's all about her just saving a a kid's life uh that was one of those scenes like a lot of other scenes in the movie that gary talked about this before but it got cut because of budgetary reasons yeah you know it's a 65 million dollar budget so scenes like that that are not necessarily important to the main plot got cut but that is a that's a that's a character moment you know yeah
3: i was gonna say it, it seems like it would be a neat subplot and if they ever did a director's cut or if they even filmed that i would have loved to have seen it yeah i think sure.
2: it got cut from the the shooting script before yeah filming uh, ever commenced
3: it, it's a great way to show her mm-hmm. internal struggle of trying to like find her like original like true self right as opposed to what she has been like that that self-hatred she's felt for so long and then you yeah know, Sam Kane comes along and you know that's her actually like giving a shit about her life and wanting to do something other than like be an, an expert killer through the CIA like right I, I like the idea of being able to watch that internal struggle and you do get to see that throughout the film but yeah that that scene that that I read about too it just that stuck out to me as one of those things that that would have been great symbolism for you know the films like in sequence of her saving her right. daughter
2: what do you guys think about Gina Davis in the role? I mean, she's she's not known for like doing action movies. I I, I can't honestly, other than this and, and I guess Cutthroat Island, I can't really think of any other action roles that she's oh, had.
3: She took this thing on like a total badass man. Yeah. Uh, that same article I think we were reading about like all the like like how fucking cold it was. Uh, I think it was from like '96 is from like the morning call or something like that. Um, Renny Harlan talks about like um, you know like. I think the interviewer asked him, like, you know, is Gina Davis like pissed at you every day? You guys go home, like, after like doing all these crazy str- uh, like stunts and torture scenes, and she's totally about it. She was like, I think she's quoted as saying, like, don't like don't go easy on me. I want you to be as tough on me as you were with like Sylvester Stallone and Bruce Willis. Yeah. Like, yeah, she-, she
2: embraced it, and and she, I think that she she's not necessarily she's not convincing to me sometimes in some of the hand-to-hand combat scenes. Mm -hmm. Um, But she's pretty imposing. I mean, Gina Davis is seven feet tall or seven feet. She's six feet tall. She is (laughs) not really because She
0: seems like it. I mean, that's weird. She is not not
2: as tall as the undertaker, Uh, but she's six feet tall. (laughs) She's a tall lady. Uh, And she's imposing. She is physically imposing. And the thing is, Gina Davis, like at this time in her career, she had, you know, of course she had been around since, Gosh, I mean, I think the first thing I know we're from is probably Earth Girls Are Easy. Hell yeah! Like the early, early mid '80s. And I mean, she's and she's 39 when they're filming this.
0: I'm kind, yeah. I'm kind of glad to hear you take like a, a middle ground there, Justin, because uh, I thought I was going to have to be ultimately the bad guy, but maybe I'm not completely crazy when I say that I have never liked Gina Davis
3: Ugh, and you break my heart. Well, I, I don't agree
0: with that. I like Gina Davis. I love Gina. Well, Nina. I'm just saying, I, I'll take the the far end of this. I, I mean, I don't hate her as a person. I don't know her as a person. I've never been a huge fan of her as an actress. And even in this, I, I did think that, like, I don't know who would have done this better. Like, she was good in this part. Um, it's just... I don't know. I watched The League of Their Own and I'm still like taking Laurie Petty's side and being like, yeah, you're such S- a bitch.
2: <laughs> I mean, I like Gina Davis. I love her in The Fly. I love Th- Thelma and Louise, The League of Their Own. You know, I, lo- I love Earth Girls Are Easy a lot. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I really love that movie, but I-, I think she's good. I just, in this though, I, I just feel like um, when she's like fighting, like it's, I don't know, for some- something about it doesn't quite land for me but when she's being like a badass and like um other action moments when it's not like a hand-to-hand fight because there actually aren't that many hand-to-hand fights and it's not that big a deal but like when she takes on her charlie persona like i think she comes across as a badass i think she's really good in it she doesn't look she doesn't look fake at all
3: No. no Her, her gunfight scenes are bar none some of the coolest shit in that entire film. Like, the entire scene where uh, she has to, like, navigate Mitch through that, like, compound. And so yeah. she's got, like, the night vision goggles with the sniper rifle, like, taking people out. That whole scene was badass.
1: Yeah.
3: Or yeah. her ice skating across uh, a frozen lake. <laughs> which That's also, good. Which also, I would want somebody on Science YouTube, please, internet, hear me. Uh, to do some form of like, if if that is physically possible for her to do, <laughs> you're too
0: interested in that, Zach. I am. I think ad- none of this is physically possible. Gary,
3: I have been watching this movie for the past 15 years. I have to know. <laughs> so, and, and
0: I will. Sam say, Jackson. Of I was course. gonna say, like, I, at the risk of sounding like a misogynist myself, the reason this movie is so great to me is I think Samuel Jackson is just fucking brilliant. Throughout this entire movie,
2: yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I, Sam Jackson is just Sam Jackson, and he's he's a, oh, he's a yeah. badass. I mean, he's going to be great in pretty much everything. Doesn't matter if the movie's good or not, Sam Jackson's going to be good in it. And, this was and, his one hundredth
0: movie in ten years of acting. That's <laughs> that's not exactly true, but I did look, point. and it was something like he'd been. You know, he started in the late seventies, technically, in like little TV stuff or something. But this was like his forty seventh movie. But it was probably just around this time, like because he had just gotten his. Uh, Oscar nom as Jules in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, that was two years before this
3: came out. I was literally just about to ask when Pulp Fiction had come out prior to Yeah, just
0: right before this. And then he'd also, uh, like, I think uh, Zeus, like he does Zeus in Die Hard with a Vengeance, like the year before, if I'm not mistaken. 95, yep. And uh, so now... So now with this one, he becomes like a... He, he'd been like a villain a lot of times, I think, or something, and now he's like a certified action guy.
2: Well, I mean, this is, I think Pulp Fiction was kind of the catalyst for Sam Jackson becoming the Sam Jackson that we all know, like... He definitely the, the drops
0: scene. motherfucker. And he actually refers to himself in this movie as a
2: bad motherfucker. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, he, he's, he's got a really fun character because he does kind of toe that line between good and bad. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a lot of fun for an actor, too, because, I mean, Sam Jackson has called this his favorite movie role that he's ever played. He, yeah, you know, I saw I, he was literally on The Tonight Show last year and was
0: asked, and he says this is his favorite movie role. Yeah, In the
2: original cut, like we we mentioned this briefly earlier, but uh, Mitch died in the original cut. I mean, you see him get shot in this, but in the original cut, they... They killed him off and they were doing an early test screening, and somebody yelled out, You can't kill Sam Jackson. Like, (laughs) (laughs) which Rennie Harlan would later go, Fuck you. Yes, I can with Deep Blue Sea. (laughs) But (laughs) like, early. Uh,
1: Yeah. Those motherfucking (laughs) sharks.
2: But they did reshoots and re-edits to let him live. And I, I also, I have to wonder if the scene where he's driving in this and he says, you can't kill <laughs> me, motherfucker. I have to wonder if that was part of that reshoot.
3: God, no, I know. Like They're like, <laughs> they didn't like that you died. Let's really bring it back explosively.
0: I did find somewhere where somebody pointed out, by the way, that this was uh, like the first movie where his obsession with the color purple, uh, not the movie, but like the actual. <laughs> he, like, maybe he is. <laughs> obsessed maybe with he is. But he likes purple as a color like he uh Mitch has a uh ring that has a purple gem in it in this movie and Then it's like uh Mr. Glass wears purple uh
2: his lightsaber
0: yeah he wears a purple hat Ooh. and changing lanes I looked this up but yeah that in Star Wars he has a purple lightsaber and Black Snake Bone his guitar is purplish and uh Can so like just... he's apparently got like a purple
2: thing
3: speaking of speaking of that um can we just talk about like the 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 costume work in this movie as well?
2: It, Mitch's outfits in this movie are amazing. <laughs> dude,
3: that like that like like super warm green like all that turtleneck, turtleneck. <laughs> oh my god, man! He looks so good in that movie. He yeah he he really cleaned up for being such a dirty dude. <laughs> yeah yeah, but um, yeah you know, I I think that
2: uh, I think letting him live in the final cut is actually a really good. I move. I agree to cool. tell it like a huge dad joke on Larry King. Well, at the it, end. it like, gives him that's... redemption. I mean, in the original script, I think that uh, Charlie like called his ex wife and said like that the the they or they got she she somehow got the the authorities to call his wife and say that like the he was innocent of the crime that he had gone to jail for. Just kind of wish he yeah. wasn't, but in this, he finds like almost more true redemption than he would by. Being redeemed by what's essentially a lie, you know, yeah, because yeah. yeah, at the end of the movie, like he's seen as the hero. He goes on Larry King Live. He tells his dad joke. His ex wife and son get to see that, you know.
3: Yeah, he. Uh, he so he's... I think
2: that's actually a better ending, personally.
3: Doesn't he like call out the 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 like director of the CIA for for treason, like on Larry King or some yeah. shit like that? Yeah, man, that's that. I mean, yeah, that that's definitely like the the point of redemption for him. It, it, it's just. It, I think that was the the reason Shane Black made that movie was just to like bring his characters to the lowest point. Well, Well, that's what he does. I I mean, that's
2: what Lethal Weapon and Last Boy Scout are all about. These characters who are at their lowest being redeemed by the end of it. I think it's a a weak point in my
0: personality sometimes that I like like to see like i want the people that even like we think the people that are the worst people maybe there are circumstances that we could make them become good again and so i, I do love some shane black stuff because of that that like these these are people that you know you, you normally we would not want them at, at birds fly south hanging out because they're kind of shitty
3: and, uh, maybe uh, mitch Hennessy.
0: i'd let Mitch. <laughs> you <have>. let mitch <laughs> is, you're like that dude's crazy but he is fucking great when he gets hammered uh, <laughs> he, uh, uh, you know what's funny too. I just look that these are side notes that aren't important necessarily, but the Yvonne Zima, who plays Caitlin, the daughter. Uh, I thought this was interesting. She's
2: been in a lot of Shane Black movies.
0: Yeah, yep. she start she was in Heat the year before this. I saw, and she the same year was in Executive Decision and this movie. So she was like burgeoning child star, possibly. But I mean, she goes on and she's she's in like stuff here and there, but she started writing a novel and uh but she tells the story about like uh somebody had asked her about shane black and she was like i never really got to talk to shane Black. he didn't talk to me very much you know like it just that wasn't part of it but then later on she auditioned and got a role on iron man 3 and uh so she's she's in iron man 3 and they're at a party and so she she, like goes up to her it's like you don't know me but i know you really well (laughs) and uh he's like who are you (laughs) and uh, she explains and He ends up like helping her write her novel and stuff like that. That's kind of cool. And then she's in the nice guys also. Oh, she's uh, in.
2: I think she's in Iron Man three and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang too. Oh, she might be. Yeah. Well, Iron Man three is the
0: one that that party was for. But yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, maybe Kiss Kiss and Bang Bang. Um, Also, every time he's in a movie, I feel like it's it's absolutely necessary to mention Brian Cox because Brian Cox is. One of the world's Amazing. best living actors. He's oh, a, he's the man, dude. He's such a great man. And I was so I honestly had forgotten he was in this movie.
2: And <laughs> well, there's a yeah, there's a lot of great little, um, great uh, you know, character actors in this movie. Oh, yeah. I also
0: forgot, by the way, just as a side note, talk about being typecast. How about uh, my name's Brian Cox and I play the role. Of a guy who is a government agent, and I'm dealing with somebody <laughs> who is a super badass but doesn't know it right now or is, is like has forgotten like their memory. Wolverine, uh, Jason Bourne, uh, yeah, Cheetah Davis. It's <laughs> <laughs> Br- funny, Brian Cox is so uh, funny. Well, it's just because he
2: makes so many damn movies too, though, you know, like Brian yeah. <laughs> Cox makes a lot of movies. In fact, I coincidentally watched. I watched something like a day or so before... No, you know what? I watched this, and then the next day I watched Zodiac, which he is also in.
1: Oh, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> and
2: I was like, it's a Brian... I watched them back-to-back, so it was like a Brian Cox double feature.
0: <laughs> I still have been The Ring not too long ago, and I forgot, like, I, I think at the time I had originally <laughs> seen The Ring... I didn't realize who he was or something. And yeah. I went back and watched it. And I was like, fuck Brian Cox. There he is. And, uh, he's was he badass a, in the ring. He's, badass. Say, he's it,
2: great. He's just badass in everything.
3: Is he a super disgruntled cop in the ring as well? No,
2: <laughs> no, no. I think the first thing I ever saw him in was probably Rushmore.
3: Mm, yeah 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 i mean I, i'm sure i
0: saw it but i just never knew who he was but now he's just like one of those guys i think to a lot of people still he's probably just one of those guys that are like i know that guy from somewhere well succession but, now i mean
2: he's fucking great i have
0: not seen that show but everybody keeps telling me to watch it
2: so. yeah it's good you should watch it so okay. uh, on the uh, su- uh, on the subject of kind of that redemption thing we were talking about with mitch uh, that that extends to charlie too i think because she like, I mean, she's obviously she starts out as Samantha. She starts out fine. She's a good person. She's nice. She's a school teacher. She's got a good relationship with this dude and her daughter. And but when she when she becomes Charlie, like Charlie, kind of tries to reject that life and kind of has to grow to embrace who she was as as Samantha. You know, because she even tries in that scene that Zach referenced. She even tries to say like, you know, when he tells her to call her daughter she's like i didn't ask for a daughter she's like that was samantha's daughter i never asked for her. um which is kind of a pretty fucking like shitty thing to do yeah, and you know funny. obviously she's also got a background as a professional murderer <laughs> so she's done some shitty stuff in her life but she still has that inherent goodness in it like that's the thing with shane black's characters is they can be really shitty people uh, joe hallenbeck is a shitty dude in in the last boy scout but he's got a goodness inside of him. Same with Mitch Hennessy. Like Mitch Hennessy's trying to like his whole mantra in this movie is kind of like, I just want to do one thing, right? Like he's trying, you know, he just keeps getting sucked into this shitty life. Uh, So in, in Charlie's case though, that inherent goodness, like it sort of, sort of comes across in her instinct to protect her daughter. Like when they're in, you know, when, well, when, one eyed Jack, I think, is who he's credited as, attacks them in the house. Yep. The first, like, big badass action scene in the movie, which is just great. what
0: I was gonna say, just since you're bringing it up, is like we we shit on Rennie Harlan, it felt like a little bit at the beginning, but if I could say so, that one eyed Jack fight scene, like, he is on point, point it's great in this I, I, fight scene. I'm I, not
2: a Rennie Harlan hater, I mean, I think that he's done some bad movies. Oh, yeah, uh, I think Die Hard 2 sucks. I, I personally think Die Hard 2 kind of sucks. Uh, but it's I love least, this movie. Well, no, I don't know if one. I love this movie.
3: It's so the only Die Hard I haven't seen.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's it's just such a rehash of the the first movie. That's kind <laughs> of, like of the two, thing. There's it's only like two Die Hard, hard in an airport. Worth, <laughs> there's only yeah. like two Die Hard movies worth watching, and they're both directed by John McTiernan.
0: I don't hate Part 4, despite everything. Part it Four has sucks. Timothy
2: Oliphant <laughs> in it. and he, Yeah, but the rest of it sucks. Timothy Oliphant's going to be good in anything he does.
3: So. <laughs> um, if I may interject some Macarathon trivia for you, One-Eyed Jack, the guy who plays One-Eyed Jack... Uh, is in the christmas special for the adventures of pete and pete as <laughs> the garbage man who uh wants to take away um uh younger pete's christmas tree and like so but, so
0: zach i'm gonna promise you there's somebody right now listening to this that just popped for that like yeah that. So I hope so.
3: yes yeah. you're welcome for the uh, nuts sir. yeah he's
2: also in 12 monkeys i think he's one of like the the I think a prisoner where uh in the
3: future where Bruce Willis is. Yeah. But yeah, so He's typecasted as an evil motherfucker. I mean, look at him. I mean, there's no way that guy's
1: playing on love interest.
3: (laughs) The first moment that he sees like chart, like see Sam Kane like on the TV, just his face is the most like sinister looking thing. He really
2: needs to be cast as Zaz in a Batman movie. That would be
3: amazing. (laughs) He just looks like a Zaz. No, you're right. Zaz,
2: hundred percent.
0: I mean, (laughs) he definitely deserves more work. He he certainly is villainous. Yeah, yeah, but
3: Zaz would be perfect. Holy He crap. has a a pointy and sinister face. <laughs>
2: yes, yeah, he does have a pointy face.
3: <laughs> but let's go back to what I was saying about Charlie's uh, kind of her
2: her kind of arc. I think comes to a head. Uh, well, for well, first it starts with with the one eyed Jack scene where you see him attacking, and she is still mostly Samantha at that point. But you've you got obviously bits of her old self are coming through because. Uh, Obviously, you see it in that final fight where she kills Jack with like a pie and a punch. Yeah, but you can. She also like the first thing she does is throw her daughter out of the wall to safety. You know, like her her first thing is to her first instinct is to protect her daughter. Uh, Of course, that's when she's still Samantha, but she's sort of in Charlie mode at that point. Right. You know. Yeah,
3: that that's kind of the, the the that is a quintessential piece to this movie because it yeah. honestly like really lines up with how she is towards the end of the film.
2: Well, when you've got them in the um in the meat freezer. Yep. Later on where they're she basically she had the foresight to fill a baby doll with gasoline earlier <laughs> early on in the movie. <laughs> Just smart, you know, smart. always be prepared. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but that ends up kind of saving them you know it's like that's the moment she, like well I think what it really is is it's not the baby but it's her she's trying to light a spark by hitting that crowbar and it's not working and she, re- and then her daughter remembers that she's got those uh, those matches stuck in her cast I think they're in her cast if I remember yep. you see it, and,
3: you it earlier and, in and those
2: there. are like she had held on to those to like light candles for her mom to find her way back home or something like that like it's a very like kind of uh, it's a very kind of loving moment between the two where Charlie realizes that she does like care for this kid that she thought she didn't want as, as Charlie Baltimore. And I think that's kind of that moment where Charlie and Samantha sort of merge and become the same person. Like she's still got her killer instincts, but she's also got her maternal instincts kind of at the same time, yeah. you know? And uh, if I, could, I think if- that's
0: great. If I could jump off something uh, Zach just said, because you just confirmed it for me. I thought I saw that with the daughter tucking the the uh, matches in her cast. And it's very brief. And so that reminds me of the last Boy Scout when uh, Daniel Harris, I, sw- I swear to God, there's a scene like when Bruce Willis first comes home and he takes that damn puppet and it's like laying in the bedroom and he stuffs his gun in it. And I told my wife that. But like everybody doubts me on this, and I think I don't that
2: think that le- I don't know. He feels like with, that's legit. She was playing with the gun in the car before the scene where, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe. when 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 her and this, we're talking about the movie from last week. Oh, that's all right, go for it.
0: I like, I'm just saying, maybe Jane Black also
2: writes very shitty parents. And, <laughs> well, in, uh, in, in, no, in the scene in the last Boy Scout, Gary, in the scene where she before she shows up with the with the puppet where she stuffed the gun into it, she's playing with the gun in the car with Jimmy. You're Diggs. right. You're right. So she had it in her hand. So no Bruce Willis didn't have anything to do with that. He was still a shitty parent in that movie. But, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> he yeah. didn't he didn't give a gun his to his thirteen year old daughter to play with.
3: <laughs> but yeah, I, I go, going back to uh the the first scene where she meets one eyed Jack and then like the final scenes where she is breaking out of the ice box, and then like going to save her daughter from once. Can can we just bring up the fact that that Caitlin, the daughter, is just like incredibly stupid for like hopping into a small cage that just happened to be on the truck that was <laughs> very weird. Rocket. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I never, I've, in all of my years of watching that movie, that's that is the one piece that just does not make sense. It to me.
0: doesn't make sense, but uh, the the things I tend to focus on there is how brutal the fight scene is and oh, yeah. like the dialogue in it is awesome. And uh, they even like have dark humor and like the Christmas carolers. Like it's a, uh, I just, I don't know, man. I just Yeah.
2: And uh, another character that I think it, he kind of gets shorted a little bit in the movie, but because the story is not about him, but it's how, the um the boyfriend the long, yes. the long-term boyfriend yeah. he, in this movie who's played by Thomas um Amandis I guess is how you say his name uh Thomas Amandis but he
3: he uh he's just a good dude yeah, <laughs> like, he, yeah that's he, the thing that's his whole character he's just a good dude he feels he feels like a throwaway character for a very little bit but there's um every time i watch it i find something new man but like there the scene right before um sam is leaving with uh mitch to go on like to go find whoever they think they can like talk to to find out about her past like he was like i realized that some shit happened last night whenever he saw her like chopping the carrot and then like throwing it up against the wall what chefs
2: do because chefs, chefs do that. that
3: chefs do that <laughs> uh and then the whole like fight scene and then literally her killing like one-eyed jack he was snapping like a
2: dude's neck yes
3: yeah uh, or i think she literally just like punches him in the back of the head but then yes. after
2: that she jerks his neck up
3: yeah so just to
2: make him double dead
3: yeah yeah that's the <laughs> best way to break a neck but he <laughs> he he stops her right before she gets in the car and he was like you know anything that you find out no matter how dangerous it is I don't care. He was like, I don't mind. Yeah. He says,
2: whatever you find, I'm not scared and I never will be.
3: Yeah. He, he also happens to be just like a moral, like centering for uh, Charlie and Sam as well. Well, and that, that kind of, I
2: think is the overall sort of theme of of the movie. And this goes back to something Gary said, I think towards the beginning of this episode where this is about like fucked up people, Learning to accept themselves, yep, you know, and, and it's not it's it's about it's about her about Charlie learning to accept herself and forgive herself for the accepting her past sins and, of her past, yes, yeah. but it's also about the people you love like accepting you de- despite your past sins as well, which is what Hal is saying there. like he loves her despite who she may have used to be he loves her who she is now that's kind of a hell of a message for a movie that most people see as just being about explosions and gunfights and snappy dialogue
3: oh yeah i mean and this is why shane black makes really great character-driven stories as opposed to plot-driven stories exactly
2: because underneath all of that kind of machismo and violence and witty you know detective novel dialogue Shane Black's movies is about the heart of of his characters. It's it's why movies like Lethal Weapon, I think, have stood the test of time. Um, and it's why I think it's why I think movies like I think The Long Kiss Goodnight deserves to be seen in a better light than a lot of people see it in. Oh, There's absolutely. some
0: weird parts of The Long Kiss Goodnight, like the way it's edited. Sometimes, like it's it's, a, it's a weird. Like jumps from scene to scene. Something about yeah. it's very odd there, oh, but. Yeah uh anyway i just thought i'd point that out but going back to what you were talking about um the it feels like there's like i don't know that hollywood was getting it at the time but yeah shane black is more than just it's i don't know it's the way we talk about like jaw sometimes i mean maybe not even on the same level i don't want to be like blasphemous here but like i'm saying like you know, Jaws is the giant shark movie, but like for folks who love it, it's like, no, you don't get it. Like it's more than the giant shark movie. It's that you care about the people that are involved in the scenario with the right. giant shark. And it's
2: like all of Hollywood just tends to there. focus on the spectacle more than, than, than on the, uh, yeah. And that, the characters, and, and like you, the first thing they want to cut is the character stuff.
3: Yeah. And you definitely have to take into account, like, I mean, uh, we've already talked about the movies that came ar- out around this film, were all, like, giant explosion-ass action movies. Like, that's that's kind of what the theme was, like, it, for a good portion of the 90s, if, if I'm, like, not mistaken. And so to have, A, a completely, like, female central character, and then, B, like, have it be about these characters, I'm sure that was... Uh, the way it was advertised, and if you've seen any of the trailers, it's all action and just, yeah. like... Full force, like explosions in your face, like and yeah, they had a fuck ton of explosions and fight scenes in that film. But the 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 core of that that movie is definitely about its characters and their redemption and 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 growing from their their dark ass past.
2: Well, and that goes back to that quote I think that we um, we talked about in back in our Lethal Weapon episode from Shane Black, where he talks about why his movies are set at Christmas because his focus is on, on the people. And, and the reason he sets movies at Christmas is because, he, like he says, lonely people are lonelier at Christmas. And, and that's Mitch Hennessy to a T. You know, Mitch Hennessy is a lonely dude. But one thing we talked about in that episode in Lethal Weapon is that a lot of these Shane Black movies, they're about people finding and creating families of their own. Yeah. You know? And that's what Charlie has done. I mean, with Hal and with her daughter. Yes, her daughter's a blood. Uh, you know, relative obviously, but she's created another family and then she's added Mitch Hennessy to that family by the end of this movie. It's about people finding each other,
0: yeah. You know, it's so fucked up. Like you're sitting here saying that, and it made me think of I mean, forgive me, but I watched Home Alone last night. They yeah, but when I forget, you, why enemies, would you apologize yeah, that's for that. saying, That's a great movie. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, forgive me that I'm going to compare these things. But you, yeah, I, I just watched Home Alone last night, and and it's so funny. As you were saying that, I was picturing, like, holy shit, that that really is standing out to me because uh, Home Alone even is more impactful because of the setting of Christmas. Because Kevin's being a little shit, and the mom's being kind of a bitch. And, like they leave kevin and then there's the old man who's like missing his family and he looks like a creep like salting the sidewalks and like it's like everything it makes it uh, more uh susceptible to like get the the redemption story
1: yeah, like, yeah. because I, I, of
0: the christmas season like yeah. you're feeling all the feels of christmas he, so, like, yeah. when all that starts to play in you're like yeah. this is this is right This He's is hom- this is the time
3: He's and I hate to, to, you know, title card, he's home alone, <laughs> <laughs> by himself, he's not with his family, and by the end of it, he is, are, like, self-reflected after he's, you know, murdered these two men like, <laughs> right. a, a trillion times over, um, but, you know, he wants to be with his family again after, like, the beginning where he's just, like, completely does not want to be with Taking his family. Taking them for granted, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... I, well,
2: and one thing, before we wrap up on this, I do have to say, like, we we talked a lot about how this movie is very much focused on that stuff and on the characters. And I think that is the biggest takeaway for this and pretty much all of Shane Black's movies is that they're character-focused over anything else. But the action in this movie is pretty damn good. I mean, we've oh, we've mentioned yeah. a few scenes, but, like, it's... Rennie Harlan, you know, for all his flaws as a director, he can direct some action, a- action scenes. Uh, that ending on the bridge is... That's an incredible. The, the whole sequence is really fun. Dude, it's just really fun. I don't get much of it. I don't know what the fuck's going on, really, yeah. plot wise. <laughs> I know they're trying to stop a bomb, <laughs> but,
3: but they didn't really. I guess
2: <laughs> they didn't really. <laughs>
3: they blew uh, up a but, bridge,
2: definitely. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's a, it's fun to watch.
3: Yeah, I can also that...
0: say, Zach, one thing that bothered me is that image behind you of the burning man. Uh, a, I love. Uh, Zach, Zach's got a zoom background as the guy hanging from Christmas lights on fire and it is one of my favorite parts of the <laughs> movie And uh, but one thing that did bother me about that scene is she definitely walks over there she cuts that wire so that his body weight pulls her up and like she grabs, she grabs on his gun so she can shoot the machine gun but later she climbs back down that wire and I'm like well you
2: cut that wire and then the guy fell to <laughs> the ground maybe it's a different <laughs> wire
0: who Maybe. cares? Guy
3: screaming. Who cares? Either way,
2: either way, a Christmas no Christmas light I've ever met is gonna hold the weight of a human being.
3: Oh hell no. <laughs> so it doesn't
2: matter either way. <laughs> That's a that good matters. point. I those will things, say this too. Those things like, are made to break, so you have to buy another one the next year.
0: <laughs> People are missing, like because you could seriously, if you wanted to be a shit, you could be like Shade Black's a hack. Here's what he does: he he likes seeds with uh uh kidnappings, uh he likes uh private detectives who end up with somebody he likes mismatched duos yeah mm-hmm. it's like private detective meets a person who's less than professional <laughs> who like handles things <laughs> you know and they have a, a hate relationship <laughs> and uh he uh what what else oh, there's always a scene where uh there's this is uh somebody uh, they're being held at gunpoint somebody gets distracted and then the hero kills them and uh, (laughs) like it's uh it's it's uh, he's got these things he's got these things he does and uh but But so does
2: tarantino you know right right they all have their
0: things there are these things about him though it's the heart of the thing but but to jump into if we're ready to go there at all is that this movie what it did though for him as a person is it is it fucked up his life like afterwards yeah. and uh he you know he well i talked earlier about lethal weapon Two and him feeling like a failure there was actually a story i read where he like tried to give the money back to the studio like he was gonna give them their money back for lethal weapon Two, and his agents again god bless them they were like you don't do that people yeah. <laughs> People write shit all day long and get paid millions of dollars. Like, you just keep the money. It's fine. Yeah. Like, it's, people <laughs> are always selling scripts that don't get made. Wow. Yeah. What
3: quality assurance by Shane Black? I didn't fucking like what I wrote. I eh, take the money back. Well, now
0: he goes back and says Lethal Weapon 2 was like the best thing
2: he ever wrote.
0: But, <laughs> but that's Shane. not the movie
2: they got made. So that's yeah. why he was trying to give his money back.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. They didn't make shit. He only made Black's 125 Weapon. grand yeah. off that movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, but he talks about like just, uh, you know, after long get, what happened for him is he just started floating because uh he said he says this quote was I was a very sensitive kid I call myself a kid I was probably 30 unfortunately after that movie people were very upset with me because I sold that script for a great deal of money uh a lot of writers who I thought were very supportive and friendly were suddenly not looking at me with anything like fondness uh they were envious because of the money Um, I just wanted to tell good stories. I didn't care about money that much. I got turned off to the whole business. I decided if, and when I wrote something, I would have to direct it myself. Uh, he goes on in that, but we'll save that for later. He says the long kiss goodnight sold for a sinful amount of money. People were angry that I took the money. People offer you $4 million for a script. What are you going to say? No, I'd rather sell it for a hundred thousand, but it engendered so much anger. I lost friends. And no one talked about the creative content of anything I did anymore. They all just assumed I was this guy with the formula, a hack formula. So the spotlight was on me. I pretended it wasn't, but it was. And for every wrong reason, it was all about the money. It was all about my supposed competition with Joe Esterhaus, who'd be the highest paid screener on who'd be the highest paid screenwriter. I didn't care. I just wanted to write stories, try to become a better writer, improve my style, change genres, even try new things. I didn't. I just stopped liking action so much anymore, but I wanted out of the spotlight too. So I subtracted myself.
2: Well, his story ended up being not, not about like he says, them, not about the creative content. Not people weren't any, they were no longer talking about how innovative and uh, excellent. His scripts were and how great the dialogue was and everything they were talking about. Oh, this is the guy who sold his script for $4 million. Uh, So it, it, I think it became, I think his story became something that he no longer enjoyed. So he was, he took another sabbatical for almost a decade, you know, and he says in that in that quote, actually, that, that Gary was reading, where he says that, you know, if I decided if I was going to, if I decided to write anything else, that I'd be the guy who directed it. He was tired of seeing his stories be put in the hands of other people. He wanted to have complete control over what ended up on the screen. And he says, he he went on to say, but I took my time, believe me. He says, I started Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang in 1999 and didn't finish the script until late 2001. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that's where we're picking up with this series. Next week with the final episode of this series with uh, Shane Black's directorial debut, which came out in 2005. So nearly two decades after the guy comes onto the scene, he finally directs a movie himself with what I think is his best script and his best
3: film, uh, Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang. I'm neo-noir. Fine, neo-noir so good just beautiful man
2: so we'll be back next week to talk about that hopefully Todd will be here for for we'll see we'll
3: We'll see see. Uh,
2: if anybody's (laughs) wondering by the way
0: I did find an interview with Rennie Harlan in movie hole and uh and it's a legit interview by the way like (laughs) I think I mean everything seemed to imply it was real but he did say uh for everybody curious uh quote I've created a treatment for a sequel to Alone Kiss Goodnight, where basically in a nutshell, the story is that in the opening sequence, Gina's character is murdered and her daughter, who now would be in her early twenties, who was five or six years old in the original, would be uh What would be now in her 20s? You just said that. And she's in university and her mother dies. She receives this mysterious package. There's something in it that she doesn't really understand. And now all of the government and a couple of bad guys are after her because they have a hunch that the mother sent uh, something special to her. So now she's on the run. She has no one to turn to. She's in over her head. The only person that she knows that can maybe help is Sam Jackson's character, Mitch. And then it becomes basically a road movie.
2: I mean, I like that idea, but I think that that story you're reading is from like 2007 or something. So. Yeah, I mean,
0: it
3: was <laughs> earlier.
2: I just saw <laughs> oh, that. I don't, I don't think that's still happening there, anytime there was, soon.
3: No, I think there was another art- uh, article from like last year where he's talking about it again. Like, or Harlan is talking about it again? Yes, where, where, yeah. yeah I'll, I'll send it to you guys, but I'm pretty sure I read that he last year he was talking about. Rene. Well, it's, it's people people
0: need redemption, Justin, and Rennie Harlan's one of them. And hey, I mean, he's just like I need to bounce back with my sequel to The Long Kiss Goodnight.
2: I mean, I get it, man. You, I mean, he listen, he's fine. What What's the last movie he directed? What's Rennie Harlan's last film? Um, it was, I got it right here. Yeah, go for it. It was something called The Misfits. <laughs> uh, no, wait, that comes out next year. Oh, shit. Bodies uh, at Rest was his last film. Uh, hmm. It's a Chinese language film. He's been producing his, a lot. I know that. That's his, It is his third Chinese language film. Really interesting. I want to know more about the later career of of Rennie Harlan, apparently.
3: You guys Uh, let me know whenever you start doing the series on Rennie Harlan. That is
1: very
2: interesting to me. So he's done a movie. He did Skip Trace. Remember that one with Jackie Chan and Johnny Knoxville? Oh Oh, yeah. Was that Rennie Harlan? Holy crap. That was Rennie Harlan. Your brother made me see that, Justin. (laughs) That sounds right. (laughs) (laughs) And that was like a, uh, I think that was a Chinese uh, co-production but then he did a movie called Legend of the Ancient Sword in 2018. A movie called Bodies at Rest in 2019. And both of which were Chinese productions. Very interesting.
3: I'm going to need to see... I have not seen this um, uh, Johnny Knoxville, Jackie Chan movie, but that sounds like one of the greatest things <laughs> I've ever I can tell of. you for 100% the only thing I remember about it is there is a point where they're
0: sitting down with the village... And they start to do, uh, uh, we could have had it all <laughs> really oh, dating oh, itself there. Yeah. They, oh they roll it in the deep, it's like a real 2016 the move. playing on drums and like, wow. Uh, yeah. It's like a tribal version of, uh, rolling in the deep as of right
2: now, he's got a movie scheduled for next year called the misfits, which stars Pierce Brosnan and Tim Roth and was co-written by Kurt Wimmer, the guy who did, um, uh, what equilibrium.
3: Okay we'll see so i don't know and it's not based on that uh bbc show the misfits right yeah, i don't
2: think so no okay. it's not based on the band either i was really hoping pierce Brosnan was starring as uh, Lynn <laughs> <as Glenn> danzig
3: <laughs> oh my god <laughs> but
0: that is
2: that is apparently not <laughs> oh the case god. that would be amazing <laughs> T- uh,
0: tim uh, roth
3: is jerry only i do uh, miss a, tim a roth so
0: that, that would be fun <laughs> nick cannon's in there so that's um, gonna be solid
3: I'll, I'll have one. I have one last comment on Rennie Harlan. If he doesn't get Shane Black for Long Kiss Goodnight 2, I won't ever see it. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> it feels well, like I mean, it that's sh- the only it way that exist that should happen. Shane Black. Yeah, yeah. No, if Shane Black doesn't write that, those are his characters. I'm, I will yeah, I agree.
2: So, well, thank you for joining us, Zach. Uh, this was fun. We'll have you on again next time. Uh, Absolutely. At least next Christmas, but hopefully before yeah, then. Yeah, Let it Seems to be a Christmas tradition around here. If to have we, have you and or one of the other or multiple Macarathon dudes on for a Christmas
3: episode? I'll tell Scott and John that you said hello. They also say they they wanted me to say hello. Scott, John, Aubrey, Patrick, Josh. We we they they all wish they could be here because the whole they love crew. Them. Yeah, we love those. One people. day we're oh. gonna
2: do a Macarathon Cinema Shock like like team up like a co production like a Christmas in July or something like that, where we do a, a little uh, co, co-sponsored movie
3: marathon. That'd Wholeheartedly down. Wholeheartedly down for that. Um, can can I make one shout-out before we get out of here? Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to shout-out uh, Brittany Brock from Ghost Animal Productions. I love and, Brittany. Uh, and, and this is uh, related to everything that we've talked about today, but Iron Man 3 is the most underrated Marvel movie of all time. Maybe the most... <laughs> maybe the most underrated movie of Does all she time. disagree with this statement or No, what? She, she she makes a point to say it every day, so she completely agrees with this statement. Oh good. Statement. Okay. Oh, yeah. Good. Okay. <laughs> I was about I, to be disappointed. I had to I had to get it on recorded podcast so we <laughs> so we have it in another medium. Yeah, so, yeah I
0: hope that someday we get to talk about it especially after this Shade Black series because I could definitely Feel that being a shane black movie even more now uh, oh, yeah. Afterward, like digging in just the way that tony stark gets torn down to his bare minimum mm-hmm. at the at the very beginning of the movie and then just has to work his way back uh from it so it's a uh, it's no, very it really cool is. yeah, yeah.
3: Ju- let me know if you guys want to do a bonus episode for shane black and i yeah. yeah three do oh, i got idea uh,
2: <laughs> so zach do you have anywhere on the internet you want people to follow you or mccarathon
3: yeah. So, uh, my Instagram is just at Zach Daigle. That's Z-A-C-K-D-A-I-G-L-E. And then the Macarathon Instagram account is at Macarathon underscore. Macarathon is M-C-A-R-A-T-H-O-N. Like uh,
2: marathon with an extra C in there. Y-
3: yes. Or, or Mick marathon, or, you know, if you Google <laughs> it, you can find it pretty easily. It's a, yeah, it's it's a weird it's word. It's the,
2: it's Macarathon. I think macarathon.com is your website.
3: Yeah. Um,
2: cool. Gary, how about you? Where can you be found on the internet? Hey, Matt, this is Gary Horn on everything. I'm at Justin underscore Bishop. You can find the show at Cinema underscore Shock on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on Facebook. We're also at cinemashock.net, where we have t-shirts you can buy now. Go yeah. to cinemashock.net and click on Shop. And, uh, yeah, we got all kinds of fun some real, fun designs on some, there. So Some real comfort
3: them. color, guys. Looking, yeah, well... looking real nice.
2: Yeah, they're nice. They, um, they're made by Threadless, who's been around for a long time. So they do good quality stuff, so... Uh, Yeah, you can support the show by buying that. Or, of course, you can always support us just by leaving a review or sharing us with your friends and things like that. Uh, Maybe we'll have a Patreon one day. I don't know. But in the meantime. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. You have a sign-off? Todd always says Johnny has the keys and it's stupid. Uh, Uh, That's a stupid. Isn't that a stupid sign-off? johnny has the keys
3: what yeah i'll just say how about die screaming motherfucker
2: (laughs) yeah that's That's
0: actually way better Uh, oh yeah you're hired (laughs) hired. yes
3: say my favorite uh quote in the entire movie it's where where charlie's talking about um deflowering a virgin by biting their ear and she goes do you ever do that and fucking mitch mitch goes nah i usually just punch him sock him in the face and yell pop go the weasel <laughs> That's <fucked up. laughs>